Good morning. I'm Sabrina. I'm one of the pastors here at LifePath, and um, the other two pastors decided to leave the country at the same time (laughs) and left me behind. So there you go. It'll be an adventure. Leah, thank you for sharing that. That was beautiful. We are going to dismiss the first through fifth graders for Kids Life with Miss Kristen going this away. And we're going to dismiss Little Kids Life, which is preschoolers and kindergartners with Mr. Ben Thataway. And I'm going to say this now just in case I forget to say it later, but I should say it again at the end. If you have kids in Little Kids Life, the rule is that as soon as gathering is over, you go get your kids from Little Kids Life because you need to pick them up as soon as gathering is over, okay? Otherwise, who knows what might happen. Could be very dangerous. And it's a new location, that's right. So you can go right out this door if you want and hang a left and go to the end of the hall and look to your right and you'll see an upside down yellow sign that says Kids Life This Way because we printed it with the arrow going in the wrong direction. So we had to hang it upside down. We might have used the wrong sign. It was Adam's fault, whatever it was. I'm certain that it was Adam's fault. Thank you, Adam, for taking the blame. All right. Let me get myself situated here. So, the last couple of weeks, we have been in a series that Keith called Holy-ish, and he started off week one um, explaining that holy essentially means different like Jesus, and the first week was different is beautiful, and we looked at the ways in which we have inappropriately used the word holy over the years um, within the church, the way the world uses it, it's this Holier than thou, high and holy, I look down upon you because I am clearly better than you, you know. And uh, that's not what holy means at all. And Jesus set the definition for holiness. And the definition that he set was holy is separate, not just separate from something, but set apart separately for something. And what we've been set apart for is love. We're set apart from the rest of creation because God made us people and not rocks or chipmunks or anything else in creation, which are all cool and and wonderful parts of creation. But we, we were set apart from the rest of creation because he he made us in his image and he gave us his spirit. And and we were set apart from, but not like in the, ew, I can't be defiled by that. I can't, I can't be a part of the rest of you. Set apart like, like special with a special, really amazing job to do. And that amazing job to do is the set apart for part. We're set apart for others. We are set apart for love. So week two, Dwayne took us into holy-ish in terms of work different. That when we are in our workplaces, we need to recognize that regardless of whether you are a widget maker or a secretary or the president of the world, that your work is the kingdom of God. And that what we've been called to, that your vocation, right, comes from Latin. He taught us Latin, vocare, to call, right? And that our our vocation, our calling, is love. And Dwayne challenged us to choose love over productivity, to choose love over praise, and to choose love over power, that that is our work. So this week, we're going to Holy-ish week three, and we're going to pray different. Now, this whole different, differently thing, it's been bothering me. 
I gotta tell you, I'm a word nerd. Anybody else a word nerd struggling with this adverb situation? Yeah, yeah. Adverbs are the most hated of all of the parts of speech. We don't know why, um, but they're, they're, they're on their way out. It's tough, man, I'm telling you. You look at like word nerd stuff online and it'll tell you. Adverbs are on their way out. Adverbs are just not used very often. And, but then I had to realize, okay, there's, there's two pieces to this. So pray differently would be the correct adverbial form. Because pray is a verb and we're talking about modifying it with an adverb, pray differently, in a different way, right? And so Duane really should have, I mean, PhD Dr. Cottrell, should have said, work differently, right? And that would have been accurate, but I had to humbly take a step back and recognize that Apple changed the whole thought about this different thing with their campaign years ago where they said, think different, because they were purposely doing it both at the same time. Think in a different way and think different things. So Duane really, probably, sorry, PhD Dr. Cottrell, was probably right to say, work different, because he was saying, work in different ways, but do a different kind of work, too. Love is your work, right? So I'm going to go with it. I'm going to say pray different, even though I really want to put an L-Y on the end of that word. We are going to talk about praying in a different way, but it's not really so much about the way that we pray. It's more what we are praying. So we're going with pray different today. So um, what are some of the ways we learned to pray when we were kids? Now I lay me down to sleep. Can you finish it for me? Oh, you heard that one too. Very good. God bless mommy and daddy. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. That's a good one. Um, God is great and, and we thank him. Very good. Or God is good and God is great and we thank him for our plate, which is also a helpful thing at the table. Um, if you were Catholic, you grew up with bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, which we are about to receive from the bounty of Christ our Lord. Amen. So there are all these ways that we, we start training our little ones, and most of us had some piece of that in our childhood. And then maybe we graduated a little bit and we got to like memorizing the Lord's Prayer, right? We were, we were singing part of the Lord's Prayer this morning. We could, you know what, let's just do this. Let's, let's just get all like formal and liturgical for a moment. Will you stand with me if you are able? And if you have the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father, whatever you were raised calling it, memorized, would you just pray it with us? And if you don't have it memorized, would you just silently pray along in your heart? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There's lots of ways to pray. You can pray King James, where everything is thee and thou and thy, right? You can be a thesaurus prayer, you know. Oh, Lord, guide us, lead us, direct us, show us the way to go right? Thesaurus prayers. I'm not making this up. You've all heard them. Okay. Keeping it real. Conversational prayer. I'm a big fan of conversational prayer. If you ever prayed with me, I love to do the just a sentence out of you and a sentence out of you and a couple sentences out of you and a paragraph out of this one because there's one in every crowd, you know. But conversational prayer where you just gather in a group and you, and you chat. 
or silent prayer. Super powerful. Some of the most profound periods of prayer in my life have been times of silence. All these are good ways to pray. They're good things to pray. Words we've memorized, words that just come naturally out of our hearts. Words that we can pray with others in community. Words that are too private to share. Words that are so deep inside us that we can't articulate them ourselves, but our spirit is just calling out. All those kinds of prayer are, are spot on. Um, the ancient Jews had ways of praying that they had learned from the patriarchs, okay, the great fathers of the Jewish faith. And there were all sorts of, of models for ways to approach God. You had Abraham. He was known for um, you know, trying to mediate, pleading for if there's just a few righteous people in Sodom, you won't actually destroy the town, right? What if there's like only a very, very, very few righteous men in Sodom? So trying to mediate, trying to, to work that out. He interceded for Abimelech's family when Abimelech had gotten... Um, into a situation where his whole household had been cursed with infertility. And when things were made right and um, Abimelech gave Abraham's wife back to him and all that, then Abraham prayed on behalf of Abimelech's household and prayed that they would be healed. He interceded for them. He pled with God for things. He pled for, um, for a child. He pled for the chance to, to still have a blessing on his son Ishmael's life. There were things in his life that he cried out for. We got to Moses. Moses was particularly famous for praying for guidance, for praying for the wisdom of God to know how to lead the people of Israel into obedience. Um, we had Elijah, one of the great prophets, who did a lot of very big public formal praying, like calling down fire from heaven to consume sacrifices in the presence of the prophets of Baal and all this very, very big, like calling the people to recognize, to look and say, oh, God is God and we are not, right? But he also is recorded in the scripture in his private prayers. And his private prayers were not impressive in the same way that his public prayers were. They were, dare I say it, whiny. Very honest, but definitely not the, here we go, here's my faith, see how big my faith in God is. They were very, very broken. I'm the only one left, God, and they're trying to kill me. We had Jeremiah, another prophet, and we did a series on him last summer. If you were part of Life Path and heard any of that, Jeremiah was a good complainer against God. He was, he was very consistent in his calling God out on the things that he was perhaps not doing the way Jeremiah thought they should be done. Um, he showed a, Jeremiah showed a lot of confidence in the power of God and very little in the love of God. In fact, Lamentations, which is the, the book that follows Jeremiah and is, is his poetic um, weeping before the Lord, it ends with, one of those great passages, one of my favorite sections, you know, I recall all these things, and yet, even though my life has been so sad and there's so much grief and hardship there, but even so, I call this to remembrance, that because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, right? His mercies are new every morning. That sounds really inspiring until you read to the very end of the chapter when he basically says, unless, of course, Lord, you're done with us, in which case, well, we're all dead. I mean, that's how the book of Lamentations ends. It's not an uplifting final line. So he had a lot of confidence in God's power, not a ton of confidence in his love. 
We got David and the other psalmists, and we have psalm after psalm after psalm, and they're of all different kinds. We've got praise, we've got thanksgiving, but you know what the number one type of psalm is? Is a lament, followed very closely by imprecations. The imprecatory psalms are the ones when you say, oh God, call down fire and burn up all the rotten people. Okay, so the bulk of the psalms even, although there are wonderful moments of praise and thanksgiving, there's a whole lot in there that is, is looking for the power of God and not feeling a whole lot of trust in the love of God. But the Jews did not only learn how to pray from the patriarchs, they learned how to pray from the law. Now the law was super closely tied prayer and sacrifice. Those two things went together. So the prayers that they were commanded to pray were very much a part of the system of sacrifice, sacrifice for sin, that allowed them to stay holy, to stay chosen, to be forgiven, um, to be, for their sin to be atoned for. And so there was, this, there was this tight connection in Jewish understanding of we pray because we have to to make sure that we're still God's people. So again, not a huge sense of love, right? There's some in there. I'm not saying there's none. So then we have Jesus. And when Jesus came onto the scene in his earthly ministry, he was raised in all of this. He was raised with teaching of the patriarchs. He was raised with the law. He was raised with all of the tradition that grew out of both the patriarchs and the law. Jews are big, big, big on tradition. And so one of the things that had grown that had become a traditional part of the, the earthly world into which Jesus stepped in his, in his ministry. It was one that was rich with tradition. And the barakoth were a big part of that. These are the blessings that are said. Okay, a barakah is a Hebrew word for blessing. And the more literal definition of it is to kneel. To bless is also to kneel. So the understanding was that you were kneeling in your attitude before God who had given good things. And there are a whole long list of them. And today, Orthodox Jews still pray this way all the time. So the tradition said that when you opened your eyes in the morning, upon waking, the first thing you said was, blessed is he who opens the eyes of the blind. That your first thought of the day would be, wow, I'm still here. I don't know exactly what happens when I sleep, but I'm kind of gone, and now I'm back, and I'm looking around. And that's you, God. That's you doing that. Um, when you got dressed, blessed is he who clothes the naked. It's just what you said. The attitude was that that should be woven into every moment of your day. And I'm just going to encourage you, if you've never played around with this idea, um, this has been a really cool spiritual discipline, part of spiritual formation, whatever that I've been leaning into for the last couple of years, is at various times to just sort of challenge myself to practice that attitude of, can I speak, blessed is he who for all the various things in my day that I would just take for granted normally, that I wouldn't even give a second thought to. The idea of praying before a meal, we often say the blessing, and what we often do is we ask God to bless the food, right? We ask him to bless our bodies with health as we take in the food that we're thankful for. But the traditional Jewish way to bless the meal was not to bless the food or to ask God to bless the food. It was to bless the God who gave the food right? So instead of saying, Lord, thank you for this bread and please bless it to our bodies that we would be strong, it was instead, blessed is he who brings forth bread from the earth. It was recognizing that 
everything that's going to go in and break down in my digestive system and give me strength and health and energy and life is because you allowed seed to grow in the ground and to be harvested and to be made into food. Give us this day our daily bread. Right? We take a lot of this stuff for granted, but it's kind of cool when you stop and think about it. So these are the things that Jesus and all of the disciples would have been so familiar with. This is the way they prayed. This was the rhythm of prayer in their lives. But we are going to talk about what Jesus did that causes us to pray different. What Jesus did that was praying different. How he modeled it, how he taught it, and how he's enabled us to do it as well. Interesting side note. We're going to share in communion together at the end of the message. And we typically read the scriptures from the Last Supper and we say then Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it, right? Some um, translations, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it. And we naturally added the word it to the end. It doesn't actually say that in the original language. We said blessed it and broke and gave to his disciples. And that's that shift in that idea. Jesus didn't bless the bread and give it to his disciples. Jesus blessed God as he broke the bread in thanksgiving for the bread. And the traditional prayer that he would have said, like this is like Jesus' actual words, as far as we would be able to guess at the Last Supper, he would have taken the bread and he would have said, blessed is he who brings forth bread from the earth. This is my body. Take it and eat it. The same God who brought forth bread from the earth in the wheat that had been baked into the actual physical bread was the same God who caused the nourishment spiritually for every disciple at that table and for every disciple who would come after them because Jesus was putting himself out there and saying, I am that nourishment. So it's, it's, it's cool. The bread doesn't need to be blessed. We need to bless the God who gives the bread, you know? Side note. Alrighty, so here we go. This is something that Jesus told the disciples very shortly after the Last Supper. He's in the garden with them. He's already gone off and prayed by himself. He's prayed those heartbreaking, from the, the very bottom of your gut prayers about the trial that's coming before him. And now he's back with his disciples again. And he says that the time is coming really soon after he goes to the cross and after he defeats death and rises again, although he hasn't spelled that out for them, but we get to like, know the end of the story. That's cool. So he says to them, at that time, you're going to ask in my name. I'm not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you dearly because you love me and believe that I came from God. Okay? I'm not going to have to do the asking, you guys. The Father loves you dearly because of your relationship with me. I love how the message says this. Eugene Peterson's message says, you can make your request directly to him in relation to this life I've revealed to you. I won't continue making requests to the Father on your behalf. I won't need to. Because you've gone out on a limb, committed yourselves to love and trust in me, believing I came directly from the Father, the Father loves you directly. Here's the difference, guys. Directly. 
No more in between. No more tying prayer to sacrifice where we say, okay, we still want to belong to you, God, and I know we've messed things up, but we're going we're to go through adherence to the law, and it's, and it's somehow still going to be okay, right? No. Directly. The Father loves you directly because of me. Zone in on that phrase for just a second. The Father loves you directly. Drew, the Father loves you directly. Lori, the Father loves you directly. It's a big deal, and we lose sight of it pretty easily. Relationship was the point. Throughout Jesus' intercession, as he would pray, and he would allow his disciples to hear and learn from his modeling of prayer, he again and again and again emphasized the relationship between himself and the Father. He would say things like, I am in you and you are in me. You and I are one. Right? Unity between himself and the Father. But then he began to teach his disciples saying, you are now in me because you have believed that I am who I say I am. So I'm one with you and I'm one with the Father. Guess what that makes you? Loved directly. Relationship was the point, and that was what was new. That was what was different. We move to the epistles, and we find Paul talking to the church in Galatians chapter 4. And he says, just in case you didn't understand this from what Jesus said and did and modeled for us, let me just spell it out. God sent him, Jesus, to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. That's like daddy. That's intimate. That's, that's relational. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. <clears throat> the message again. You can tell for sure that you are now fully adopted as his own children. The adoption's been finalized, guys. Because God sent the spirit of his son into our lives crying out, Papa! Father! Doesn't that privilege of intimate conversation with God make it plain that you are not a slave, but a child? So, we love rags-to-riches stories, right? Um, we can go back to Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper, and we have Edward and Tom, and we have Edward, who is the crown prince, and we have Tom, who is a peasant, thus the, or pauper, whatever, prince, pauper. Yeah, and they get to switch places. They change roles. Now, they don't really change identities. They change roles. Their externals are changed. And so Tom is put on the throne and all the people there think that he's the crown prince. And Edward goes off to live in poverty and experience what life is like on the streets. And everybody thinks that he is Tom. They change roles. And in the end, they both learn important things and amazing stuff happens. And everything is restored to right at the end. And the pauper is no longer a pauper too because the crown prince takes good care of him in the end. Good story. We have um, things that are a little bit better than that though. A little bit more ushy squishy like my favorite princess, Cinderella. <laughs> the reason Cinderella is awesome is because she is proof that the right pair of shoes can change your life. 
Cinderella marries the prince, right? She's the poor little cinder girl, and life is terrible, and she's got the wicked stepmother and the wicked stepsisters and all that. And she gets the fairy godmother. Why does she get a fairy godmother? Because she is good in her heart, right? And so the fairy godmother says, you're filthy, dirty, ugly on the outside, but I see your inside is pretty. And so I'm going to make your outside match your inside, and it's going to open doors for you. BT dubs, the shoes. Yeah. So Cinderella is an even better story, right? She gets rewarded for what is inside her, and it's manifest on the outside, and Prince Charming, right, takes her away, and that's, that's fabulous. But I would, I would put out there that the best rags-to-riches story that comes the closest to giving us a taste of what it is to not be slaves, but to be adopted, and the adoption is final, and we are his beloved children, is, I'm just going to warn you, because for some of you this is going to be a little traumatic. I'm sorry, I apologize in advance if this is upsetting. Annie, the musical. I know a lot of you hate it, it's okay. I personally do not hate it, but I understand that it is like a gaggingly sweet thing. But the awesome thing about little orphan Annie is this, she's an orphan. And she lives like a slave because Miss Hannigan says, just scrub those floors until they shine like the top of the Chrysler building. And it's a hard knock life, right? And, and there's Oliver Warbucks, and he's a billion zillionaire. And he lives in his, in his penthouse or whatever. And he runs the world. He has all the power. He has all the money. He has everything. And because of an opportunity for him to bring an orphan home for Christmas. He's going to do this Christmas thing, and Annie comes into the Warbucks mansion, and she very politely calls him Mr. Warbucks, and she says, okay, I'll start with the floors, and then I'll clean the windows, and, 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 and they say, no, no, no. Annie, you're not here to be a slave. You're here to enjoy yourself. You're here. The swimming pool is to the left inside the house. Oh, boy right? And she says, leaping lizards every time you turn around because she's so astounded by all there is there for her. But the story doesn't end there. It ends with the fact that Oliver Warbuck's love for her becomes so overwhelming that he just has to adopt her and make her his child. And she stops calling him Mr. Warbucks and she calls him Daddy Warbucks. Now, whether you can't stand the Tomorrow song or not, Personally, I think it's adorable. But if you're, if you're not into, into the, the musical, if you're not into the sweetness, perhaps the gaggingly saccharine sweetness of Annie, can you at least look at the idea that it's not even enough that she was brought in to the mansion? That the story wasn't over until Oliver Warbucks had redeemed her status as an orphan. There's even a song called, You Won't Be an Orphan for Long, because he's going to change that. He's going to fix it. She's not going to be an orphan anymore. She's going to be his. She's going to be adopted. Her whole identity is going to change. We get into trouble with this, though, because a lot of us have daddy issues, baggage, right? Not every human father was totally perfect. In fact, I would bank on the fact that not any human father was totally perfect. Some of us had the blessing of having really cool fathers. Some of us had really, really hurtful relationships with our fathers. Some of us don't know who our fathers are. 
and it's been crippling. We got daddy issues for the most part. And so we tend to put that on to this idea of the father loving us so much that he adopts us. And that's supposed to make us feel safe and loved, and it doesn't. Because we still don't quite know what to do with that, that, that daddy stuff, right? <clears throat> and that's actually a pretty good throwback to the way a lot of people in the Old Testament, even great men of faith, the words perhaps and maybe show up again and again and again and again in the Old Testament. It's really interesting. If you do a word search for this in an like, online Bible study tool, perhaps and maybe. And it's almost always referring to God. It's people of, of great faith. It's people who are following after God. It's people who are being used by God to do amazing things in the world. And they're still finishing their prayers with perhaps God will help. Maybe God will hear us. Perhaps the Lord will step in and do something here. Because you can't really assume. Because, I mean, God is God, and we are not, and that's a big assumption. If you do the same word search in the New Testament, first of all, the words hardly ever appear. When they do, they're almost always referring to us. Maybe we will listen and respond. Perhaps we'll get out of our own way and follow after him and see what happens. But they're not about him anymore because Jesus made it clear there's no perhaps, you guys. There's no maybe. The relationship's there. He cares. He's intimately involved in what is concerning you. You don't have to wonder whether maybe he'll care. There's no perhaps or maybe. Jesus' example, oh wait, before I do that, yeah, so observant Jews today celebrate Yom Kippur, it's the highest of the high holy days, it's the day of atonement, and it goes all the way back to when the law was first given, and the idea of the day of atonement is that it is a day of fasting and prayer, during which each individual is having to take a really hard look at themselves and recognize their sinfulness. They are encouraged to make relationships right with others that they have wronged or that they have been wronged by before they come to synagogue. But the prayers that are offered and the practice of fasting and the encouragements through the day of Yom Kippur are all to recognize very clearly who they are before who God is. So they want to see God in his holiness clearly, in his perfection. And they want to see themselves clearly and recognize who they really are in humility. There ain't nothing wrong with that. Sometimes we need a good hard look in the mirror. But the sad thing is that many, not all, but many observant Jews at the close of the 24 hours of Yom Kippur, when the fasting is over and it's done for a year, often say, maybe this time God will forgive. About that for a minute. It'll break your heart. I've just done everything I can to look at you and recognize who you really are, God. And I've just done everything I can to look at myself and see who I really am. And wow, I'm seeing the difference between the two of us. 
maybe you'll forgive. It's not what Jesus wanted for us. It's not what he taught us, and it's not what he showed us. Romans chapter 8. This is from the message again. God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant. Greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is, and we know who we are, father and children. The answer to our daddy issues, to our daddy baggage, is to realize that if we, if we got baggage when we're looking at him, it's because we don't know who he is. He's not that father. He's not whatever the hurts are or the fears in you that are related to what you know of an imperfect parent. The more we know who he is, not just his perfection, but his perfect love for us, the more this becomes life, adventurously expectant, greeting God with a child like, what's next, Papa? I don't know about you guys, but my life does not always feel like that. My prayer life does not always reflect that attitude. But the more that I look at who he is, relationship, as lived out absolutely, utterly, completely in Jesus, relationship, the more I see who he is, the more I'm able to look at who I am and respond with, okay, what's next, Papa? That's what I want for all of us. More importantly, that's what Jesus wants for all of us. This is so different from the way the world prays. It's so different from the way many of us have prayed within the church. But it's certainly different within the world because when you look at prayer around the world apart from Jesus, it is all about hoping that God will hear and care and answer. Perhaps, maybe. That's not what Jesus showed us. He said, oh, the relationship is a done deal. The, the hearing and the caring, you don't have to wonder about that anymore. It's there because you're mine and I'm in him. The relationship is done and you are beloved children. <clears throat> the rest of the world prays in an employee-to-boss kind of relationship. Dwayne mentioned this in last week's message about work different, that um, we read passages in the scripture about slaves, and, and we've got um, slavery was in the last slide, which I don't know how to get to, so that's fine. But it said we're no longer slaves, right, and now we're children instead. And we think of slavery in what we picture from America's history, of slavery in the antebellum South. But that slavery often was more of an indentured servitude kind of thing. And so it's, it's more of boss to employee in your mindset. Now, you can work for a boss that you really respect and like. You can have observed this boss to be honest, fair, um, concerned for his employees, that kind of thing. I mean, a lot of us have worked for a decent boss at some point in the past. We may work for one now. But even when you like your boss, 
even when you're under the impression that your boss likes you? You don't really know what's going on at home for your boss. If your boss is going through a hard time, somebody in the family is diagnosed with cancer, a marriage is breaking up, there's been a financial devastation that's happened, you may very well find that your boss is different at work than you would typically expect him to be. And you don't know why, because you don't have that kind of relationship with him. He's not sharing his personal life with you. He's just a good boss when he's at work. So there's always that little bit of fear. There's always a, a, a separation. And that is so often how we approach God, isn't it? In prayer, we come at him like he's a really good boss, who most of the time we find to be really fair and compassionate. But then there's that one time that you go in thinking it's a no-brainer that you're going to get off for this day that you're asking off for, and he barely even looks at you and says, no, I'm sorry, you have to work. Don't let the door hit you on your way out. And you're going... I don't get it. Like, I need that, why, he didn't even ask. Oh, I wonder if something else is going on, you know? There's that separation. You can't count on it. When we're talking about father to beloved, fully adopted child, there's no separation. Your lives are so intimately entwined that you can absolutely count on that relationship being faithful and being founded in love, and being expressed in love, even when an answer is no, and no, you can't have that day off. The answer is because it's actually going to be really bad for you if I give you that day off. I know you don't fully understand it, but you so need to be at work that day, so I have to say no because I love you so much. And you walk out going, okay, weird, but maybe we're having like donuts at work that day, and he doesn't want me to miss right? So the assumption is the love, because that is what is unfailing in our Father. Isn't that a cool difference? It's not a boss thing. I mean, he is the boss. Don't, uh, he is the boss, but he's Father. He's Daddy. He's Papa first, last, and always. We pray holy-ish. We pray different like Jesus, because we are praying kid to awesome dad. Not just dad, but awesome dad. And in case the words are not cutting it for you, we're going to wrap up with a visual, because I think visuals help sometimes. I know, I know, I'm a grandmother. Anything to get Sloan on the screen. I know! Is that picture not killer, though, you guys? Look at her little face. Is she worried that daddy's going to knock her off that dinosaur? Does she look adventurously expectant? Look at his hands. Look at his little blue backpack. Can you see yourself in this picture? Can you be childlike, not a grown-up who is trying to have it all together when deep inside you know you do not have it all together? Can you put yourself in that picture and be childlike? Can you sit with an awesome dad's hands holding you steady? Can you recognize that he's got a blue backpack full of every snack you might possibly need? He's prepared. It's all there. Can you know 
who he is and know who you are? Can you ride a dinosaur and be adventurously expectant and say, what's next, Papa? I want that. I want it for me. I want it for you. Jesus wanted it. And that's why he made praying different. Rooted in relationship. Beloved kid to awesome dad.